Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Happy New Year. Happy belated New Year. I haven't seen y'all in about six months, it seems like. It's good to be back in church. How many of you are thankful to be here this morning to sing praises to Jesus Christ? Man, oh man, happy New Year indeed. It's been another challenging week. I'm getting tired of these challenging weeks. How about you? Uh, but we're in the middle of a maelstrom, it seems like. But let me tell you something this morning. Y'all listening? Amen. This pastor hadn't lost his joy. I haven't lost the peace that passes understanding. I haven't lost the source of my security. You know why? Because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is shifting, unstable, sinking sand. Only in Jesus can you find the joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. Only in Jesus can you find the peace that passes understanding. Only in Jesus can you have a living hope that goes beyond the here and now. Only in Jesus Christ can you find absolute security. And that's what you're going to find when you come to this church in the year 2021. You're going to find an emphasis on the gospel. You're going to find preaching from the Word of God. You're going to find us pointing people to Jesus as life's only hope. And so today, we come to this gathering on this important Sunday, unafraid and unashamed and excited about the future that Christ has for us as a people. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus, this morning. Now, we had <clears throat> obviously got a new series of messages that's designed uh, to make sure that we're all focused on the right thing. In fact, that's going to be the source of our preaching all the way through the year. Our preaching this year is going to be focused on the gospel all the way through. We're going to start uh, our year this year with a message series that we're calling Restart, uh, the mission of Hillcrest. We're going to identify who we are and why we're here, what it is we're called to do, and what it is we need to be focused on like a laser beam, not only this year, but until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And then in the month of February, we're going to shift our preaching to Paul's primer on the gospel, which is his letter to the Galatians. Are you going to read and study Paul? If you're going to master Paul's letters, you need to start with Galatians. It is an unashamed statement about what's most important to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to take several weeks and unpack Paul's letter to the Galatians. And then we're going to move this summer into the book of Ecclesiastes in a series that I'm entitling, What's the Point? What's the Point of Life? Ecclesiastes may be the most real book in the whole Bible. And we're going to take several weeks and unpack what the point is from the perspective of Solomon, who'd seen it all, been everywhere, done everything, and came to the end of his life realizing what really mattered. And it's important for us, young as we are, to realize that and to focus on it like a laser beam. Then we'll end our year this year unpacking the most practical New Testament letter, which is James, Theology with Legs. So we're going to look at the gospel from the perspective of theology. We're going to look at it from the perspective of real living. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of practical application, what a Christian really should believe 
And what a Christian should actually look like is he or she lives their life on a daily basis. So I've just given you the whole year in a nutshell right there. So come back every week and get excited about the Lord. Now this morning, take your Bible and be finding Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter number 3. We are beginning, we were supposed to begin this series last week, uh, but we of course, as you probably know, been spreading a lot of sickness around our house. Still not 100% to be honest with you, so pray for us, uh, but we're about to get back to normal. So we're running a week behind, but that's okay. We're right on time in terms of God's divine timetable. Y'all still believe that the Lord is on his throne this morning, ruling and reigning, that God is sovereign? You still believe that nothing catches the Lord off guard and that God is at work accomplishing his plan to bring about history <clears throat> to a final conclusion? And make no mistake, God will be glorified through all of it, and that's the greatest desire of my life is to glorify the Lord with my life, and the greatest desire for our church should be to glorify the Lord in terms of what we believe and how we live and how we function according to our mission. And so that's what we want to do in this series called Restart. We want to review our mission, why we're here, our vision, our core values, and to get us started, we're going to return to our mission statement. Uh, our articulated <clears throat> synopsis of what this church is all about. And we're going to take today and the next four weeks that follow uh, to totally unpack it. And uh, I'm going to be doing some of the teaching, but we're going to team teach it for the most part because I've shared a lot of these concepts before, and so you'll hear them from some fresh voices from the perspective of many on our staff. And as we do, for some of you, this is going to be old hat, uh, for others, this will be the very first time that you've heard it developed. We're briefly going to review our mission statement as we do uh, in each of our monthly Discover Hillcrest classes. If you come to a Discover Hillcrest, you're going to hear this stuff every time. The new people tend to have a better understanding sometimes of who we are and why we're here sometimes than the people that have been around for 30 years because they hear it fresh. We unpack it every month as new folks come into the life uh, of our church. But we usually take less than an hour to do that. We're going to take about five plus hours and unpack it completely over these next several Sundays. And the reason that we're going to do that, particularly to those of you that may have heard some of the stuff that we're going to share before, is simply because it takes a long time for stuff to get into people's spirit. There's an old saying in leadership circles, namely leadership or vision leaks. Vision leaks. If it's not repeated constantly, it tends to go away like a mist or a puff of smoke. So you have to talk about it, and you have to talk about it regularly, and you have to talk about it consistently because if you don't, it'll become less familiar, and people will start running around saying, what are we supposed to be doing around here anyway? And that question ought to be easily answered by members of this church and by attenders of this church. And we're going to help you along the way if you don't know how to answer <clears throat> that question. At the same time, we're also going to introduce you to a small but very important tweak that we've made to the statement. Our mission statement basically was put together in the year 2009, and so it's going on 12 years old. And we designed it that way. When we put that statement together, one that we've talked about, our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ, so forth and so on. We'll read that here in just a minute. 
But when we put that together, we designed it to be biblical. We wanted it based on scripture. Amen. We designed it to be memorable. In other words, it doesn't need to be too long, which is a great challenge. Finding a mission statement that's long enough to be reasonably comprehensive, but at the same time short enough to be easily memorable is a challenge. Because if people can't memorize it easily, they tend to not remember it. So we wanted it to be biblical, we wanted it to be memorable, and then we wanted it to be as much as possible measurable. In other words, how do we measure whether or not we're actually succeeding at doing what we've articulated to be our calling and our, our mission? Not only that, we wanted it to be enduring. In other words, we, we don't want to be changing mission statements every four or five years. Y'all know what I'm saying? And so we wanted it to be something that could stand the test of time, and we believe we have that. We don't have to change it, at least not much. And for 12 years now, we've not changed it. Uh, but today, as we roll this out fully to our congregation for really only the third time comprehensively since 2009, we're going to modify the statement just a little bit. And as we'll see more completely in a minute, uh, our mission statement will continue to revolve around the key phrase, becoming like Christ. Would you say that together with me? Together. Becoming like Christ. That's still going to be the heart and soul of who we are as a people. Disciple making, 101. And then we're still going to continue to employ what up to this point has been three core values. Worship, connect, and serve. Those three things are still going to be a part of our identity as a church. Part of what we're going to change is simply adding a fourth core value. So we're going to elongate the statement, but only by three words. Uh, so it's not going to be a, a, a cumbersome kind of addendum. But we're just going to add something to the mission statement to emphasize what we've been emphasizing about discipleship in our church for now the last two years. And as you'll see here in just a minute, it'll nicely round out the statement, but more about that in just a couple of minutes. For now, I want to take a minute and talk about the biblical purpose for every Christ-centered New Testament church. And I can summarize the purpose of the church in three words. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, a Lutheran church, an Episcopal church. If you call yourself a New Testament church, we have a common mission, a common purpose. And most of you should know what it is because we talk about it all the time. The purpose of the church is to what? To make disciples. That's right. Good. That makes me feel so much better this morning. I heard that slight little rumble. Everybody said it. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. Jesus addresses that subject uh, in some of the final words of his ministry on earth after his resurrection and just before his ascension into heaven. It's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And here's what it says, just by way of reminder. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There it is. Did y'all see that? Say amen. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am what? Say it out loud. I am with you. And that's the encouraging part of the statement. We don't have to do this alone. 
Christ doesn't save us, pat us on the back, and then push us away, sending us out to accomplish something without his divine help. Lo, I am with you for how long? Always, even to the very end. <clears throat> I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that passage, of course, from Matthew 28 is known as the Great Commission. Co-mission, it means we're co-laborers with Christ. We're laboring together with him in the vineyard, in the mission field. And there are two very important things that I want you to notice this morning about that statement. One is that Jesus tells the church to go. It's his divine way of saying, get with it. Get after it. Because the time is short. Jesus said that. Night is coming when no man is, uh, can work. When I was a little boy, we used to sing an old gospel song in our church. Work for the night is coming. Work for the night is coming. Work for the night is coming when man works no more. So there's an urgency to us being on mission together with the Lord Jesus Christ. Go is the first word of the Great Commission. And the implication of that's very clear. We cannot fulfill our mission if we don't go. We cannot fulfill our mission inside of a big old church building. Because Jesus made it clear that his disciples, those who follow him, are to be salt and light. You remember that statement from the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. You are the light of the world. Both of those are incredibly important agents of influence. Salt is of little value unless it comes into contact with what it's supposed to affect. It has to touch the meat. It has to be sprinkled on the fried eggs. It has to go on the popcorn. It does little good if it's contained in the shaker. And light is of the same effect. Jesus said nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. That makes no sense to most of us today. But if I were to say you don't cover up a light in order for the light to do its intended work, everybody understands it. And no, light, you lift a light up high. If you want to illumine a room, you put a light in a very prominent place. And so these are statements designed by Jesus to help us, his followers, to know that we're supposed to be tools of engagement. We're supposed to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, penetrating the darkness of the lost culture with the light of life, who is Jesus Christ himself. And so for God's people, the Great Commission reminds us it's always time to go. We need to be engaged. But then a second thing we need to notice is that there's an emphasis here on obviously making disciples. That's the purpose of every Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. It's exactly the same. The purpose of the church really isn't so much to win converts, although you can't make a disciple unless you win them to Jesus. Isn't that right? But Jesus does not say go and win converts, although that's implied. And many churches do that oftentimes. The measure of their success is simply how many people they've baptized in a given year. And I think Jesus would say that's a great start, but you're not finishing the task because he doesn't say go and win converts. He doesn't say, he says we should baptize people, but then what comes after that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Totally devoted, fold out, uh, sold out, committed followers of Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple is, and that's the purpose of every church, to make disciples. A disciple, of course, is just nothing more than a committed learner. It's somebody that attaches 
himself or herself to a master, somebody that's skilled and knowledgeable and proficient in a given area, regardless of what that area is. You attach yourself to them for the purpose of acquiring their insight, gleaning from their expertise, understanding what they know in order that you might perform like they perform. You want to become like them, whether it's learning how to be a blacksmith or learning how to be an attorney or whatever the case might be. The best way to do that is to attach yourself to a master by being a disciple in order to glean from them that you might become like them. And that's the whole point of biblical Christianity. The whole point of biblical Christianity is to attach yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ in order to learn his ways, help others to live biblically along the way. We want to become like Christ. Did you know that in the New Testament, you know how many times the word Christian, 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 how many times the word Christian is in the Bible? I just told you, twice, two times. How many times is the word disciple in the New Testament? I mean, I'd be really impressed if somebody got this right. 268 times. You got the 68 right, give her a box of Snickers candy bars. Amen. Close enough. 268 times, almost 300 times. And so being a disciple is the whole concept. It's what we're to be about, helping people in becoming like Christ. The church exists to make disciples. And here's the thing, that's an important distinction because there are a lot of people in the world call themselves Christian and they're not disciples. They identify as a Christian, but by the comportment of their life, there's no indication that they're closely attached to Jesus Christ. Can't tell it, can't see it, no obvious evidence that they're becoming like Christ. John Ortberg, who's a great uh, Christian pastor and writer, says that he said something one time I've never forgotten. He said, most people in the church today are not disciples of Christ, they're users of Christ. They want just enough of Jesus to help them sleep well at night so that if they don't open their eyes the next morning, they've gotten their get-out-of-jail-free card and that's all really of Christ that they want. They just want to know I'm going to live forever in a better place than this. But that's not taking Christ very seriously at all. Because Christ is looking not for people that identify with him. He's looking for people who long to become like him. Who attach themselves to him. Who take following him very seriously. In fact, so seriously that it's the most important part of their entire life. Listen, there are a lot of people. You might be at church most every Sunday. The question is, what happens between the Sundays? A lot of people are at church most every time the doors are open, but they hardly ever pick up their Bible, Don't, aren't really motivated by the Word of God, might pray when they sit down at mealtime, and maybe that's a rote prayer that's been memorized and repeated 150,000 times over the last 20 years. But they really don't have a strong communion with the Lord in prayer. They don't really honor God in terms of how they use their finances, don't tithe to the Lord. They're Christian in a cultural sense, cultural Christianity. 
It's not really a good thing. It's just a way to identify religiously. And a lot of people are like that. But they're not really disciples. At least not from the standpoint of consistent obedience to the Word of God and conforming their lives. The Bible says that God's will, we as God's people, have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's the whole purpose of salvation. Why did God save me to look like Jesus? To become like Christ. To be conformed to His divine image. To pattern our life after His divine standard. How we think, how we speak, how we live. In fact, let me show you a little schematic this morning. Some of you have seen this before. There are four types of people that you'll find in churches just about every Lord's Day. And there are four types of people without question that are in this room right now. So these are the kinds of people that myself and pastors like me tend to address every time the church gathers together. The first kind of person is a person that we call an explorer. And so it's a person that's exploring the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we call those seekers they're in church because there's maybe something that they feel like is missing in their life. They're unfulfilled. They may be people that know enough about Jesus to be what we might call an admirer of Jesus. They have a high view of Jesus, but they really don't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Let me just say, it ought to be the desire of our heart to have all kinds of people who are exploring Christ coming in through the doors of our church sitting in our seats here at Hillcrest, we ought to want a whole range of people who have all kinds of weird beliefs, things that we would not necessarily agree with. We want those people inside the walls of this church, sitting in the seats of this church. And those are the kinds of people that people who are becoming like Christ go out of their way to attach themselves to in order to minister to, to influence, to bring them in so that they become part of God's eternal sheepfold. And there's maybe some of you here like that this morning. You're seeking spiritual truth. You're exploring what this thing called Christianity is all about. I think that's a good thing. So these are individuals that are on the what we might call the left side of the cross. They haven't come to Jesus yet, but they kind of are seeking and they're looking. And then there are those, secondly, who are what we might call new in Christ. And they have crossed the bridge of faith. Now they're on the right side of the cross, but they're new in the faith, and they're immature in terms of what they understand about the Lord. They don't have a lot of biblical knowledge committed uh, to memory yet. They don't know how to find books in the Bible necessarily, not very deep or not very mature in their faith, but they possess an excitement. They've found Jesus. They realize that there's been this wonderful change in their heart that's been wrought because Jesus has come into their life. And they may not still be connected. They may be intimidated by a lot of things that happen in the church, but they've started the journey, and they're growing, and they're learning. All of us, how many of you know Jesus this morning? Would you shout amen? Right, there was a time you were one of these, right? And if you became one of those as an adult, you know, there's probably a part of you, if you're like that this morning, you're just, you know, kind of a little intimidated. Maybe intimidated about going to a small group. Because that intimidating leader in there is going to call me out, right? He's going to make me read or find some passage in the Bible, right? So there's an intimidation. 
And by the way, that shouldn't happen in any of our small groups. Nobody should ever be called out, put on the spot, or anything of the such. So you should find those safe places for you to go. But we understand the intimidation. But you've started a journey, and you're growing. And then third, there are those that we might tag as close to Christ. And these are people who've been around the block in church. Many of you have been around Hillcrest for as long as I have. And we would classify you perhaps as close to Christ. You've been reading the Bible for a long time. You probably go to a small group of some kind. Couldn't imagine life without your connect group. Maybe you sing in the choir, serve in a ministry, help out in certain uh, service areas in the life of the church. Maybe you've even been on a mission trip uh, a time or two. Um, but there are still some things that may be areas of growth in your life. These are people, by the way, that tend to support their church financially in all kinds of ways. Uh, but they may not be totally sold out to Jesus. You know, they may read their Bible, but they may still be sporadic in terms of reading their Bible. But then there are those, fourthly, that we call Christ-centered people. Christ-centered people. And these are the, these are the sold-out fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus taught in Matthew 6.33, what I think is one of the most important things that ever came out of the mouth of Christ, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, prioritize your relationship with Jesus, prioritize your life as a kingdom citizen first, don't prioritize your life in terms of any other priority over and above Jesus Christ, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Have no other gods before God's, and then let God take care of the rest. Let God fill in the details. Let God provide for you. In other words, don't seek after the stuff. Don't seek after the American dream. Don't seek after money or the things money can buy. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these what? Things will be added unto you as well. The Lord knows what you need even before you ask him, right? So God's going to take care of those who prioritize the right thing. And Christ-centered people are the ones who actually do that. They seek first the kingdom of God. They give God the first part of every day in communion with Christ. They give God the first day of every week. The Lord's day is important to a Christ-centered person. They give, the, they give the Lord the first part of every dollar. They honor God with their finances. They give God the first consideration in every decision, right? I mean, I don't mean to be flippant, but almost to the point like I was. My wife's still at home dealing with some of this sickness. I had to go to the grocery store day before yesterday with this long list in my hand. She normally accomplished it in 20 minutes. I was in there for two hours. Kept going back and forth, back and forth, trying to find stuff. I couldn't make up my mind whether or not to buy the Green Giant or the Del Monte or the Publix brand Colonel Corn. I'd commit it to prayer. Oh, God. <laughs> Which is the best deal? He said, which is the cheapest? And I said, Publix. That's the one. I mean, you give God the first consideration of every decision. And that's kind of a silly example, but you know what I'm saying. This is what Christ-centered people do. I give God the first part of every day, the first day of every week, the first dime of every dollar, the first consideration 
of every decision, particularly the really significant ones, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, all four of those kinds of people, and I don't think anybody would argue with me about that, are all four of those kinds of people typically in Hillcrest every Sunday morning? Absolutely, they sure are. And most of them, the great majority of them, are number two and number three. With smaller percentages on the ends. That's the gospel truth. And that's true in most churches. And see, here's what a church wants to do. Our church and every church wants to take people on this long-term discipleship journey where you're helping people in becoming like Christ from the explorer stage to the new in Christ stage to the close to Christ stage to the Christ-centered stage. And we shall not nor should we be satisfied until every single person under our sphere of influence is a sold-out, Christ-centered, fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose, to help people in becoming like Christ. And speaking of that, that brings us to the statement this morning. It's only taken me, what, 23 minutes to get to it? Here's the statement. Here's the new statement. And really, for the most part, there's one slight change in terms, uh, in terms of grammar and then one addition at the very end. So let me read it to you, and then we'll read it together. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Here's what it says. Our mission at Hillcrest <clears throat> is to help people in becoming like Christ. Nothing changed about that. People who worship God, connect with others, serve the world, and then now a fourth core value, invest in somebody or someone. Got it? Now, that shouldn't be new to anybody because we've been talking about making personal investments with people for now two years. We started our year last year with a Who's Your One campaign. That's an investment in people. I'm going to identify a person that I can make a personal investment in in order to get the gospel into their life in some way, shape, or form, in order to see that person become someone who's not just exploring Christ. And maybe a beginning point is to get people to consider to explore Christ, right? Some people are just lost. But to get them across the bridge of faith to where they're now new in Christ and growing in Christ so that they can become close to Christ so that they can eventually become totally Christ-centered in terms of their worldview and the course of their life. And one of the things we did with this statement is we dropped the INGs from the core values. You know, before it was our mission at Hillcrest was to help people in becoming like Christ by worshiping God and connecting with others and serving the world. Now we just kind of changed that a little bit by dropping the INGs so that we could just emphasize the words as they are, worship, connect, serve, invest. But then also that grammatical way of presenting uh, the statement uh, helps us to identify what it is that we want people actually doing. It, it, it's a picture of what a person who is becoming like Christ actually looks like. They worship God, they connect with others, they serve the world in a ministry in some way, shape, or form, and they're looking for opportunities to invest their lives in the lives of others 
for the purpose of personal evangelism and personal discipleship. Now that takes us to Philippians chapter 3 this morning because I want to show you where that vision comes from biblically. Because really all we've done is take that statement from the personal mission statement of the Apostle Paul as he himself describes it in Philippians chapter 3. This is a very familiar passage of scripture and it's kind of a part of Paul's before and after. Here's what I looked like before I met Jesus and here's what I now try to look like as I walk with the Lord. Let's get a picture of that beginning in verse number 7. Paul says, whatever gain I had, in other words, in my previous life, in my life as kind of this rising star in rabbinic Judaism, whatever source that was of profit to me, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as law. How much of his former life? Everything. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him, there it is, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul makes three very important statements. You may have noticed them there. Statements about himself in proximity to Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, I want to gain Christ. Did you see that? That I may gain Christ. And then from there, he moves to the statement, I want to know Christ. You see that? I want to gain Christ. I want to know Christ. And then what's the last thing he says about his proximity to Christ? I want to what? I want to become like Christ. You see the progressive nature of that? I want to gain Christ. In other words, I want Christ to be a part of my life. And then once Christ is a part of my life, once I have profited in the greatest kind of way by gaining the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, then secondly, I want to know Christ. And that's an even deeper word. That's an intimate word because by gaining Christ in one sense, Paul did know Christ. I mean, when you're saved, you, you have to know Christ in order to be saved. But when he says, I want to know Christ, he's using a word there that talks about intimacy, basically. You see, I, there are a lot of people I know. I know the governor of Florida, but I really don't know him. You'll know what I'm saying? I can identify him. I can tell you a few facts and figures about what he stands for and what he believes in and maybe even a couple of things about his family, but I don't know the guy. I mean, I, I don't know what motivates the guy. I, I really don't know what he's all about. I don't know the things that are most significant in his life. I know him, but I don't know him. See, that's a lot of people in their relationship with Christ. They know Christ, but they don't know Christ. And Paul says, I want to 
gain Christ for the purpose of knowing Christ. But that's not even sufficient for the great apostle. The purpose of his knowing Christ was that he might become like Christ. I'm telling you, the greatest desire of my life, and I've got to quit talking here because I'm about out of time, but the greatest desire of my life is for people to be able to point to me and say, there goes a guy that looks like Christ. I mean, based on what I read about Christ in the Bible, there goes a man whose speech is like Christ, whose heart seems to be in lockstep with Christ, whose actions and reactions mirror the Christ that I read about in the Bible. I mean, those of you that know Jesus Christ, isn't that what you want said of you? There goes a man of God, a woman of God, as was said of David, a man or woman after God's own heart. Man, Paul looked at his past life, and he had some stuff, man. As far, I mean, he was a shining star on the landscape of rabbinic Judaism. Kept the law blamelessly, a Pharisee born to a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin, the fighting Benjamites from the southern tribe. He had a lot of reasons to boast from a Jewish perspective. But he makes this remarkable statement. All of these things that at one time were a source of great profit to me, I now consider what? Loss. In fact, he doesn't even stop there. He says, I consider them not only lost, but I consider them what? Rubbish. Now, I can't tell you vocally what that really means because I might get fired. Splankna. Excrement. That's what it means. I now consider it a pile of manure. Nothing for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I should have issued a PG-13 preamble to this sermon today. That's what he says. And this is the way all of us should want to know Christ. And let me just say this morning, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other major world religion, isn't it? You will never hear a Muslim saying, I want to know Muhammad. They'll never say that because they don't believe Muhammad is living, right? You'll never hear, but you don't have to know anything about Buddha to be a good Buddhist. You just adhere to a bunch of principles, right? But you don't have a dialogue with Buddha, you know one of the reasons I know Jesus is alive? Because I talked to him this morning. I had a conversation with him this morning. I talked to him and he talked back to me by his spirit who lives within me. That is foreign to every other world religion on the planet, which is all principle-based and all obedience-based. And if you don't keep up with the rules, you have no hope for the afterlife. Christianity is different. Only Christianity will say, I want to know Christ. You know why? Because there is no Christianity without Christ. 
You can have Buddhism without Buddha. You can have Islam without Muhammad, but you cannot have Christianity without Christ. And that's why the greatest desire of your life is to recognize that Jesus is not a dead leader. He's a living Lord. And the greatest desire of our hearts should be to know him and the power of his resurrection and help others to know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, how do we do that? Well, you come back the next four Sundays and we're going to tell you. My job this morning just prime the pump. Because we're going to roll out the four key core values of how we help people in becoming like Christ. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people, all y'all, in becoming like Christ. And we're going to introduce you to those four key core values that come into play. Worship, connect, serve, invest. So that with our lives and throughout our lives in these ever-increasing ways, we learn to worship God, connect with others, serve the world, invest in people spiritually one by one by one. Those are the core values that define the life of a Christian disciple, and it's unending. It's like Paul. You know, you never completely arrive. Isn't it amazing that here you have a guy writing to Philippians in the third chapter of Philippians that had, had seen a vision of Christ, had spent extended time in the presence of Christ. Here's a guy that had been walking with Christ for 30 years of his life, riding now from a prison cell. And I don't know about you, but the last thing I expect to hear a guy like that say, the last thing I expect to hear him say is, I want to gain Christ, I want to know Christ, I want to become like Christ. What are you talking about? You've already had all of that. And then he says, not that I have attained all of this. He hadn't arrived. And if anybody would have arrived in their spiritual walk, it would have been him. Not that I've attained all this. Not that I have already been perfected. Then three words come out of his mouth. I press on. And then you know what else he says there in verse 15? All we who are mature should have such a view of things. Amen. I want to be like Paul, too, who wanted more than anything else to be like Christ. In jail, in jail. Somebody needs to say this morning, thank God I'm not in jail. Now, we may be one day. Who knows? But then you can go back to Philippians and realize you can be in a prison cell and still have not lost your joy. Because the one thing that Paul hadn't lost was Jesus. He hadn't lost his joy because he hadn't lost his Lord. The greatest desire of my life is to become like Christ. And I want my church to be filled with hundreds upon hundreds of people who have the same testimony. I want to gain Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to become like Christ. This is who we are, and this is why we're here. And all God's people said, amen. amen.